Josh Pettit, welcome back to The Bag Drop, part two. Dr. Alistair McKenzie, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, so we talked about the man himself a lot on the first episode. Now I want to talk more about his work, which we obviously touched on a lot of the big ones. But uh, I, I, I want to talk about the, some of the specific courses, especially that we're going to be visiting in our winter meeting. You're a California guy. You're a California-based architect. So I'm sure you have some, some info on those places in particular. Um, but before I get to that, I, something you said on the last episode made me think about Dr. Alistair McKenzie's writings. And for me, the, I think the thing that really connected me to him as a writer wasn't his thoughts on golf courses and strategy and architecture, which that <laughs> definitely was awesome. It's like getting in the mind of an architect is a really cool thing if you if you enjoy playing golf. But it was also his takes on uh, club management, his takes, you know, I, I'm a founder of a golf society. So I found that all very fascinating on his, his takes of club management and structure, uh, his takes on playing the game of golf. He's got some like swing tips. I, there's one that literally is on a note in my golf bag, which was so simple. It was just feel the handle, which I, for me, it works. I don't know why, but it, I, maybe it's even more specific than that. It's like feel the handle in your fingertips, something like that. Uh, it works for me, you know? So I actually have swing advice from Dr. Alistair McKenzie. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering uh, what... That's, that's the what, thing. What's your favorite non-architecture take of his or, or, or something that stands out in his writings for you? Um, non-architecture. Well, okay. Uh, just sort of as a, as a preface. Yeah, he, you know, he was kind of a Renaissance man and... Uh, pretty knowledgeable about a lot of subjects, you know, so he wrote about economics. He wrote, you know, a lot about medicine, you know, um, it was this way of sort of trying to recommend golf to a lot of people was, you know, in those days, like, like you've got some physical ailments, get outside, get some light exercise, you know, experience nature and a landscape. And uh, so he would prescribe golf, you know, to a lot of his patients. He talks about that. He writes about that a lot. Um, you know, he wrote about politics. He would talk about travel, culture. Um, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll see that in the, in my book, the McKenzie reader, that it's not just all golf course architecture. And you know, I've told a lot of people that, you know, you don't have to be like a hardcore architecture nerd to enjoy that book because there's sort of a, a, a big diversity of subject matter in that book. That's pretty enjoyable for, you know, I think, Oh, some people will find interest in, in any number of the subject matters. Um, and then obviously he wrote a ton about camouflage. That's the one we, we, we haven't really touched on that yet, but that's, you know, we could have a two hour conversation podcast specifically about camouflage and how it influenced his thinking and how, you know, it influenced the way he built golf courses. Uh, it's critical. So he wrote a lot about camouflage. Um, and, and all these things. So what, I guess to answer your question, what's my favorite? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I really like the, I mean, and it relates to golf, but it's, it's all sort of connected, but I, I, I love his discussion about economics. I find that really interesting and 
extremely relevant. I think that's maybe the reason why I find it so interesting is because it's not only was it relevant then, especially in the early 30s during the Great Depression, it's as relevant or even more so today, I think. And it's something that's overlooked by so many people in the golf business and the you know, whether it's in the, on the agronomic side of things or in the construction design side of things, or even just golf operations in general. Um, you know, I've been exposed to a lot of different sides of the industry and, you know, this, I always hear people talking about this, this subject of like, you know, the cost of golf, especially here in the States and how it's just so out of control and the cost of managing and operating a golf course is out of control and building and renovating golf courses. And, it kind of frustrates me because nobody really is talking about the underlying economic issues, the drivers of all of these costs and how you can creatively uh, manage those way more efficiently. And so he wrote a lot about that. And so, you know, and I like to do the math on converting, you know, the dollar figures or, or British pounds that he would refer to in some of his writings and uh, you know, do you know convert that to an inflation adjusted dollars and come up with like a real dollar figure for what those figures actually are like for instance cypress point cost 1.5 million dollars in real dollars to build um you know at the time it was ninety thousand uh, dollars you know his the one of the most important uh, moments of his career actually was he had just built Alwoodley, and it was his first course and because he was a founding member and he essentially convinced the other founding members to let him be the architect. And, uh, but not after they brought in Harry Colt because they, they kind of thought like, wow, you know, you got a lot of really interesting ideas. He had come up with all these route, these sketches and routings and, and, but they thought, well, you know, this is pretty compelling, but you're also like maybe a little, a little crazy. So let's, uh, let's consult with like a professional. And in those days, Harry Colt was the guy. So Harry Colt came in and met with the committee and met with McKenzie and they, and that's how they developed a friendship and a partnership actually um, was out of that. But Harry Colt essentially said, yeah, he knows what he's doing. These are great ideas. This is very sound and he's very capable of designing your golf course. And so that was how he did his first project. Well, right after that, right down the road, another group of guys got together and wanted to create what is now Moortown. And, but they didn't have the capital to actually build it. Um, but they knew they wanted McKenzie to help them. So they had a hundred pounds. They're like, we've got a hundred pounds. You know, this is 1908. Uh, what can we do? <laughs> and McKenzie, you know, thought about it and his idea was, all right, how about this? I'll build you one hole. I'll build a par three, one hole. And then you can use that as a model to present to potential investors, founding members, so that you guys can raise the capital to eventually build the whole golf course. So he did that. He built what was the eighth hole, the famous par three at Moortown that he named Gibraltar, which is kind of like a Redan hole. And it's kind of interesting because he talks about how when he built that hole, he had never been to North Berwick and he had never seen the Redan. But later on, when Hunter, Robert Hunter wrote his book in 1926 called The Lynx, he refers to that hole as a Redan. And so Mackenzie thought that was kind of interesting. Like, wow, you know, I built that hole without having seen the Redan. And then he went on to, Mackenzie went on to build a lot of, you know, Redan inspired holes. You know, the sixth at Augusta, for example, 
um, or the 14th at Metal Club that you guys will play, which doesn't really quite play like it did originally. But um, so anyway, so he built the eighth hole at Moortown and people were just blown away by it. And he built it for 25 pounds. And I did the math on that, converting it into real dollars, you know, adjusting for, adjusting for inflation. And it's like, I think it's like $6,500. So imagine building a hole today for $6,500, <laughs> R3, T to green. Um, and, and that allowed them to raise the capital to build the rest of the golf course. And that's how they built more town. And now today that's the 10th hole. But anyways, there's all these examples I could point to uh, where he really gets into the nitty gritty of the economics of the design and the construction of a golf course and the maintenance, because they're all really intertwined. And his, the way he referred to it was always the economization, the economization of golf course design, the economization of golf course construction. And um, so I don't know, to me, that's, that's really fascinating because it, it presents a lot of lessons for, I think, people that are in the design and construction and agronomic industry today that they could learn from. Um, and I think that's sorely lacking actually in our business. So I, yeah, that I, I'm sort of partial to the economic stuff, which you wrote a lot about. I, yeah, I, I think I find that fascinating that we, you know, have those materials of his thoughts on, on that, those sorts of things. I think, you know, kind of our headliner, I, I shouldn't say headliner, but one of the ones that Everybody wants to go play as Pasa Tiempo. And that's what we kind of built our itinerary around on our uh, winter meeting uh, coming up here. And um, just some of the, the things I found, I, I guess it was Spirit of St. Andrews. I will, we'll find out. I'll find out more when my Mackenzie Reader shows up uh, from, <laughs> from you, Josh. But I think it was interesting to me that he, he had that friendship with um, – Marion Hollis, and and obviously she's a legend in in golf course development and and so many other things. But um, but just the way he talked about Pasa, not just as his favorite golf course where he put his home and and famously you know lived off the uh, what is it the sixth fairway there is where his house is. That's right. Um, just got a tour of that recently. But it was got to know the owner and and she had me over and we spent like four hours inside just talking and looking through the house. It's pretty cool. So, so like that, that would be really cool. The, the, um, I, I could probably yeah, you talked about it being accessible. If you guys want to, uh, take a tour, I bet you she'd, she'd have you guys over cause you're a small group and that's really nice woman. I bet you she'd do it. Yeah. Into her house. It'd be cool. Yeah. If you'd be willing to to make that introduction, man, that'd be awesome. But the point I was getting to is like similar to what you mentioned on his economic thoughts and policies. Uh, he shared the ideal around accessibility, which is really one of the premises of um, New Club, which is golf can be accessible, affordable, and still excellent. You know, I think we've gotten this ideal where, oh, well, it has to be private to be at a certain caliber or it has to be, you know, the exclusivity and scarcity in order for something to be great. Mackenzie, and I don't even know if it was that many comments, but I have definitely some, some quotes from um, one of the books that, that really talk about one element of Pasa Tiempo that was working really well was the ability for public play, but also their thriving membership, which is still the what it is today, as I understand, a very 
uh, exclusive private membership, but also, you know, we were able to book tea times as visitors and guests more synonymous to his homeland of Scotland. And, and he drew a couple of those parallels. So for me, I think that that was another factor of like, man, this guy wasn't just going around building golf courses, uh, just capturing a paycheck, he, he was really thinking of every element of, okay, how does this now work for their budget? How does this now work for their community, for their club, their, um, the, the different stakeholders? That, that to me is just another level of thoughtfulness in his writing that uh, jumps, jumps off the page at me. Yeah, no, I'm, gra- I'm glad you pick up on that. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot you could say about this. Um, yeah, clearly the, the the culture in Scotland and, you know, especially in Scotland, but, you know, more broadly in the British Isles um, is very, very different. And then, you know, you also get this a lot in, in like Australia and uh, the, the culture is quite different than what we're accustomed to in the States, which was kind of developed really in the 20th century, early 20th century, this, you know, private exclusivity model. And, um and there's a lot, you know, historically there that that happened with, like, if you trace, for instance, the history of the Royal and Ancient and their relationship to the links at St. Andrews. The links always belonged to the people of the town, the residents of St. Andrews, and still does to this day. You know, it's managed by the Lynx Trust. The Royal and Ancient, they're their own private club, which is a very exclusive club, but they don't have a monopoly on the play at the course. And so... I guess maybe like the easiest way, this is sort of an oversimplification, but maybe the easiest way to think about it is in those days, a club started by a group of people getting together. Like for instance, like you guys, you know, and and you probably are aware of this, um, but a group of people would get together and say, we want to form a club. That doesn't necessarily mean they owned a golf course and they would seek out golf courses to play at but they didn't necessarily own that golf course, you know, like Mirrorfield is another great example of this. You know, they had several properties that they played at before they ended up, you know, the honorable company of Edinburgh golfers was the club before they actually ended up on their current site, which is at Mirrorfield. Um, and so the club, and, and this was very common. They would, they'd, they'd find a club, uh, a golf course to play at. And oftentimes they would outgrow that course or something would happen. The city, the metropolitan area would develop and, you know, the, the land values would be driven up. And so golf was kind of driven out of the, the cities and more into the suburbs and they'd relocate and they'd build another course. And oftentimes it would happen multiple times. And um, so in other words, the, the club wasn't directly connected to any particular golf course in, in those days. Um, and there was always this ability for the town folk, all the locals to play there as well for almost nothing. I mean, so much so that, you know, and it's like this today, if you're a resident at these places, um, you can play, you can get like an annual pass for almost nothing. And you could be a blue collar worker and have a pass at the old course and play golf almost as much as you want throughout the year. Um, And that's just something that's so foreign to us over here in the States because it seems like, you know, most of the courses are, are, are higher end private exclusive clubs. Um, but that bifurcated model. And then also what happened too, you know, this has been a more recent development in the last say 30 years 
all those courses over in the British Isles, they, you know, they, they constructed them very minimalistically and very cost effectively. And they maintained them very cost effectively, usually with a couple of guys. That's it. And actually in those days, it was mostly like volunteers from the town that would get together and they'd do the maintenance on the course. Um, and then um, what happened was, you know, as agronomic have, agronomics have evolved and technology has evolved and the standards have risen, you know, people want faster greens and better turf grass and all these things. Um, the costs have really driven up, but these clubs over in the UK, they, they kind of created this separate bifurcated model, which is we're still going to keep it super affordable for the locals, accessible for locals, affordable for locals who want to become members. But then the tourists, the people from the States that want to go over or from Japan or Korea, or wherever you're coming from that want to go play Mirrorfield, well, you can go play Mirrorfield, but it costs a lot of money. And you can go play, you know, the best courses over there. Uh, you can play the old course. Access is is tough because of the demand there. But all these places you can get onto, you're paying a steep green fee, which I think is well worth it. Um, but and that's how they essentially subsidize the cost of the operations of the club to keep it really affordable for their members and for their locals. Um, with Mackenzie, though, uh, kind of like I guess on. What you were what you're bringing up about the accessibility for the for everybody, I refer to him as a populist of golf, and that's because the way he wrote was you know his desire was to bring golf to the masses. You know he he wanted municipal golf courses in every city across the planet that were not just you know kind of like rudimentary kind of funky municipal courses that we think of. He wanted really, really good, well-designed, well-built, well-maintained municipal golf courses in every city across the planet. And that was sort of his motivation. And it's not that those ended up being all of his clients because he did plenty of clubs for private clubs. You know, he, he did plenty, you know, he had plenty of contracts from like your Cypress Points and your metal clubs. And, but, you know, he also did your Sharp Park, uh, in San Francisco, you know, he, he actually talked about the municipal golf courses in San Francisco at the time, how he thought that was kind of a model for the rest of the country. And he wanted all these municipalities. And he talked a lot about, um, the benefit to the public, to society <clears throat> at large by having access <clears throat> to these properties, because going back to the health concept earlier, he saw that there was such a healthful benefit to recreation and golf just happened to be the form of recreation that he loved the most and he wanted to promote. But <clears throat> he thought it was such a worthwhile investment for cities to invest in their recreational facilities and to, to present these opportunities um, for everybody. And so I think that's, that's probably like the best way to think about in terms of, you know, how he was trying to make golf accessible for everybody. It's not just that he was turning down contracts for private clubs and only doing public access properties. He did it. He did everything, but that was really where that was what he was motivated by. And you'll, and you'll see that when you read, he, he refers to that a lot in his writings. <clears throat> 
Yeah, there, there's a there's a quote I used to have on my LinkedIn profile <laughs> because I know you're in the golf industry, Josh, and I made that jump back in, uh, geez, 2016, I suppose, is when I got started. But, um, you know, I kind of felt like I was crazy for a bit saying, all right, I'm going to start this business called New Clubs, going to be Golf Society. Like, am I really doing this? Like, I'm going to go work in golf, which everyone's telling me nobody gets paid and nobody plays golf. And exactly. you know, this this seems silly to me to, to give up a corporate career with stability and all these different things. And and there was a quote that really resonated with me from Mackenzie's um, writing. It was, uh, I have it here. It's always, it's always at the ready. But one of the reasons why I, a medical man, decided to give up medicine was a firm conviction of the extraordinary influence on the health of pleasurable excitement, especially when combined with fresh air and exercise. How frequently have I, with great difficulty, persuaded patients who were never off my doorsteps to take up golf, and how rarely, if ever, I have seen them in my counseling room again. Like, I've seen that. I, a- I, and, well. and not just, <laughs> yeah. And not just physical health either. I mean, I've seen the spiritual and mental health benefits of golf, both in my life and with hundreds of people I've been fortunate to meet in the game. So it, it was one of the quotes I put on my LinkedIn because I definitely got a lot of the comments from friends like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> you know, you got a good job. Where are you working in golf? And I was like, honestly, it's deeper than that. It's something in my core that just just says, um, it is more than a game and it, it, it can be just a game and that's okay too. But uh, it's benefits and what it does for society and culture. And, and Mackenzie is one of those people that obviously felt that very deeply. Yeah, no, I mean, that's been the motivation. That's why I've been in the golf business for 24 years now. Um, and as difficult as it's been at, at a lot of times. Um, and, and yeah, the running joke is always like when I talk to people at, aren't really familiar, you know, about being in the golf business and they, Oh, you must play golf all the time. You know, not nah, really. <laughs> like I don't play nearly as much golf as I used to. Um, you know, I'll go sometimes months without playing golf if, if I'm busy, but you know, on, on that quote with Mackenzie, um, I know this sounds a little, little crazy. And, and there are some people that would criticize Mackenzie for being like, you know, grandiose, grandiose and, and, uh, you know, sort of an exaggerationist, but, he, he talked about the health as it relates to individuals, to people. And that quote sums it up really well. You know, yeah, the, the physical health, the mental health, the spiritual health that comes from that. But he also wrote about how more broadly speaking at a societal level, kind of more at a micro or at a, at a macro level, how it was healthy for society. And, and I know this sounds a little crazy, but he really, really believed this. And he wrote that if, if like every, country in the world had access to a lot of recreation golf in particular but like all sorts of recreation well that would prevent wars from breaking out um because it would it would you know prevent societies from becoming disgruntled and you know and in those days you got to keep it in like this historical context um this was after the great war that we now refer to as world war one and there was this you know, march towards Bolshevism or communism in Russia that was very worrisome to the Western powers. And um, and so he he actually refers to that like, you know, well, basically, like in Russia, if they had golf, essentially is what he's saying, you know, that could prevent war from breaking out. 
and 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 same with like places like Germany and that kind of stuff. Um, and you know, it's I know again that maybe that sounds like an exaggeration or kind of crazy or maybe like almost naive to a certain point, but in a sense, like I, I think he's onto something there. You know, um, and and actually, he wrote a lot. You know, this is sort of an aside as just a historical nerd. I think it's really interesting that he he really foresaw, and a lot of people did too. You know, he he foresaw World War II coming. You know, he his the bulk of his career happened during the interwar period after World War One. You know, he did a few of his projects before World War One, like Allwoodley and Moortown that we talked about. But the busiest point of his career was the interwar period after World War One. And then until the time he died in 1934 and, and he wrote about how he, he saw there was a, you know, there was another world war brewing and he feared that it was going to break out. And like, I have letters that he wrote to the president of the league of nations, which was like the precursor to the United nations, which fell apart. And, you know, he wrote a president to Herbert Hoover in the white house, you know, saying like, I have all these ideas on camouflage and, that was another point. Actually, he, he really talked a lot about how he thought from a military standpoint, like a nation that embraced camouflage or his philosophies on camouflage that could help also prevent war. Um, and so he, he like wrote letters to the president saying like, Hey, you know, I'm on a train heading to Augusta. And if you'd like, I can come to the white house and meet you and like explain to you my theories on camouflage and warfare and how we could like prevent war because he was really concerned about, you know, all those that experienced World War One, their biggest fear was that another great war, another world war would happen, you know, and, and the, the motivation after that was always like, you know, the mantra was never, never again, we can't ever allow, you know, casualties on this scale war on this scale to happen and um but then as early as like you know the late 20s and early 30s it became clear that just what was happening geopolitically around the world that, that that's where things were heading um, so anyway going back to to golf and the health it's like he, he talked a lot about how there was all these health benefits on a micro level to the individual but also on a macro level to society at large I know if the uh, the professor were here, he always tries to take us into the dangerous waters of like, he's an academic, so they love this stuff, yeah. but he always takes us in the dangerous waters of politics or religion. And so right now he would definitely try to interject that. So I'm going to channel a little bit of him. Like he was buddies with Robert Hunter, right? And I know you use the, the term populist, which I, I love that term thinking about how he thought about golf, but I think Robert Hunter, if I'm not mistaken, was a pretty proud socialist. Is that right? Was Much, McKenzie in that camp? No, no. So, and this is kind of um, being a, you know, I, I'm, I'm fascinated with politics and political history as well. Um, and, and I've studied this <clears throat> quite a bit. Um, Robert Hunter was a socialist in the, you know, in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, actually, you know, kind of like the turn of the century in the early part of the 20th century. He was a proud member of the Socialist Party. And, you know, he, it was no secret that he married into a very wealthy family. Um, his wife came from a very prominent family in Connecticut. And so he was dubbed the millionaire socialist, which was like this dichotomy, you know. And, and his whole thing was like, you know, how do we get health and wellness to the masses? You know, how do we get society more affordable? and, um, you know, Im improve, um, 
improve the living standards amongst everybody, all classes. And, and so he ran for governor, you know, he dipped his toe into politics. And in 1910, he ran for governor of Connecticut on the, so, as a socialist, as it's part of the socialist party and didn't win. Um, and then, but he, he renounced his membership in the socialist party in 1914, when World War One broke out. Um, and this gets to be, you know, a little more complicated and maybe convoluted. And there's actually a professor at the Arizona State named Edward Allen Brawley, who uh, wrote a biography on Robert Hunter and goes into, you know, he's an academic type. And actually, he'd be probably a pretty interesting guy, a guy for you guys to talk to, especially the professor. But, you know, he did all this research on Hunter and, and I was doing research on Hunter for his golf career. And he was doing research on Hunter for his academic and political career and as an author. And we got to know each other. Um, you know, this is almost 20 years ago now. But um, and so I, I don't know exactly the details, but he renounced his membership in the Socialist Party because of their stance on World War One. And essentially, like, I think. And I, again, this is probably oversimplifying it, but in those days, the Socialist Party was adamantly against, you know, the United States getting involved in World War One. And if you recall, you know, they didn't get involved until 1917. They kind of came in and saved the day for for Western Europe. Um, but the war broke out in 1914, and there was all this controversy in the states. You know, was, that was the the number one debated political issue: is do we get involved with the war or not? And Woodrow Wilson at the time, who was the president, was, you know, kept saying, you know, we will never, ever get involved in the war. We'll never get involved in the war. And then and then he went back on that. And they did, obviously. And uh, but the Socialist Party take on it was this is only for profit. You know, we're trying to it's like, you know, kind of even before the concept of the military industrial complex that Dwight Eisenhower brought into the public lexicon in the 50s, post-World War II. You know, that was sort of their stance on it was like, well, this is just really for profit and we shouldn't be in this war. And Hunter vehemently opposed that view and thought it was worthwhile that the United States get involved with the war and help, you know, our allies. And, uh, and so that was a split. And then fast forward a little bit, you know, Hunter was a professor of economics, actually, at Cal at uh, UC Berkeley. And um and by that time so this is 10 years after he had lost the governorship of connecticut as a socialist his his thinking because of his study of economics that drove him much more to like free market economics and to like you know capitalism and he became more and more conservative later in his life and and uh, you know my recollection is when he died in 1942 he was you know, and it, again, it's like it's hard to draw really comparisons because things were so much different. The geopolitics were so different, but I think he would have been sort of considered a conservative in those days. And that was actually kind of before the term conservative was really even widely used in politics. But um, but getting to really your question about McKenzie is no, he was also I mean, and this is my impression, you know, just reading his writings so much and and trying to understand him is he was he was pretty much a he was a free market capitalist when it comes to economics and 
he thought that the in those days the Soviet Union their model of centralizing power and and trying to run an economy trying to centralize an economy and run it out of Moscow um, he thought that that was a huge mistake and was a bad precedent and um, and he saw the clash between what was coming eventually you know between um, that form of society, a, a centralized form, a centralized economy and a decentralized economy, which was, for lack of a better term, capitalism in those days. And he knew that those would sort of clash at some point. And um, so essentially, that's what ended up being the Cold War. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't I don't think he was like in no in no way would you say that McKenzie was like a socialist or a communist or or anything like that. Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, it's what I'm laughing about is if you don't think golf has a profound influence on people's lives, the fact that you and I are here talking about a preeminent golf course architect and and we've now, you know, we're into politics and we're into you know, socialism versus capitalism. And it, it's just funny to me that it, it has that effect. I mean, there's no way you can argue that it, it hasn't made a profound impact on societies and, and on communities of people and clubs and how we spend our recreational time. It's just fascinating to me. Before we lose uh, our Mackenzie files on the golf side, I'm going to bring us back into the, the golf element of it with a question because we have uh, a very devoted Australian listener who wants to know if uh, you had to, to stack California Mackenzie courses against Australia, uh, Mackenzie courses, who has the better profile Ooh, Por portfolio? Sorry. Portfolio. Yeah. That's a, that's an excellent question. Um, <laughs> before I get to that, let me just say really quick, there's something back on what we were just talking about. There's one article I'd like to point to in the Mackenzie reader that if you want any sort of a sense on Mackenzie's views on, politics and economics. Um, there's an article in the McKenzie reader called America's prosperity. And he wrote it and it, it was published in an Australian, I'll tie this into Australia. He wrote it, it was published in an Australian publication. And he had, his argument was like he had been to California. And in those days, California was still pretty much the wild west and development was booming. And people were moving out here from all over the country and it was very unregulated. And, you know, and, and so he, he talks about how kind of in those days he thought California was a model and how when he went to Australia, they were kind of doing the opposite. Um, they were kind of not totally like the Soviet union, but they were trying to, you know, they had very high taxation rates and they were trying to do sort of a centrally planned economy. And he, and he, outlines this contrast between his time in Australia and his time in California. And, and then he tells a story about when he's leaving Australia, um, he'd gotten paid, you know, for those commissions and, and, but he like didn't pay taxes. Like he, he was obligated to pay some sort of taxes when he left. And so I forget exactly the story, but he's like on the boat, like just leaving Australia or something like that. I think he's actually already on the boat departing and there's like a tax man that's going around and somehow like finds him and is like, you owe us like X amount from whatever, how much money you made here. 
and and he it's I can't I'm not going to do it justice, but it's just a funny story that he he uh, he recounts. But I love it. Yes, like, well, what if I don't? What if I don't pay? And he's like, well, I'll arrest you and take you off this boat or something like that. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> but to answer the the uh, the listener's question, you know. I am ashamed to say that I, I've only been to Australia once and I have not been to Melbourne. I only went to Sydney and it was for a non-golf related trip. So I did spend one day, I went out to New South Wales, which is incredible at La Perouse outside of Sydney and toured that golf course. And it's phenomenal. It's, it's really good. It's definitely worth seeing. But, you know, when people think of Mackenzie in Australia, they typically think of Melbourne and the Sandbelt. And the courses you did down there, Royal Melbourne, it's probably, you know, most prominent. And then others like Kingston Heath and, but he did a lot, you know, some other renovation projects there. And so, but again, I have not been there. I mean, obviously like pretty well familiar. I've, you know, studied them and I, I know guys that are there. Um, Mike Clayton is, is, um, I don't know if you've ever had him on the pod, but is a great resource for this. And, you know, um, he, he wrote a piece in my book that's like a really interesting piece about Mackenzie's time in Australia and how he influenced golf in Australia. Um, but from where I sit, I'm just stacking up the, you know, the list of courses that he did, the portfolios. And I, I say, you know, I got to say California wins um, in the sense that, you know, you've got Cypress Point and Paso Tiempo. And then I think others that are sort of underrated, like Meadow Club. And and then also in those days, you had Sharp Park, which was world class, which is not really the same as it is now, unfortunately. Uh, but a lot of these properties, you know, even Green Hills, which is, um, I think you guys are going to Green Hills, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's the opener for our, our trip. Yeah. yeah. So Green Hills is a really interesting property. And I think one that just doesn't really get much credit or it kind of flies under the radar. You know, it. They haven't really done, it's kind of, um, it's, it's in need of some restoration work, definitely. But, uh, you know, if you look at the old photos of that place, it was, it was really good. And it still has a lot of potential to be really good. Um, and so, you know, and then you think of like Valley Club, you throw that in there. And, um, you know, and then you've got Northwood, which was this, you know, incredible nine-hole golf course at the time, which is also, you know, in need, you know, sorely needs some restoration work. Um, but I don't know. I just compare that. And, and Royal Melbourne is maybe arguably a top five or top 10 golf course in the world. Um, and Kingston Heath is, I think, very good also. But if you just had to compare the two portfolios, I'm probably biased here, but I'm going to go with California. Um, but here's what I'll say about the, about the Aussies. I think they are the best green keepers in the world and they um starting with mick morcom who was the superintendent that built royal melbourne and built some of those other courses and then um his predecessor a guy named um claude crockford those guys set a standard for green keeping that i think to this day the rest of the world aspires to um and mm. so I think when you play Royal Melbourne, you know, it typically plays pretty firm and fast and linksy, which is what Mackenzie envisioned. You know, it, it embrace, you know, it makes you embrace the ground game. It makes you think about the angles 
that you're approaching a green into, you know, what part of the fairway you're trying to get to, to approach correctly. You know, you can't, it doesn't reward or doesn't even allow, it doesn't accommodate for target golf, which I wish these courses in California would. And I think, you know, things are trending in that direction, but we have a long way to go to be able to present these golf courses in a way that McKenzie would have wanted. And I think if, you know, this is just my sense, if McKenzie were alive today, he would probably tell you that Royal Melbourne uh, and those, all those courses down in the sand belt are, are maintained the way that he had envisioned. And that's what he would want all these other courses to be maintained like. So, you know, the architecture is one thing. Uh, it's all well and good and it's it's great, but if the course isn't maintained in a way to really showcase the architecture well, then, you know, it, it doesn't really play that way. And, and, you know, part of it is like there's climatic differences and there's things going on. But so if you play out here in the rainy season, it's soft, usually depending on, you know, the drainage infrastructure on what course you're talking about. Some are better than others. Um, but you you know, the reality is you can throw darts at a pins when it's soft out here and play target golf. And Mackenzie would not want that at all, but you can't do that on the sand belt in Australia. So, um, you know, kudos to those guys, those Aussies, they're, they're, they're scrappy. They're, um, they're always battling the economics, um, and the ecology as well, because Australia is a constant state of drought. And so those guys manage water better than anybody in the world, pretty much. And they're super savvy with their labor. And I know that they can manage those crews with much fewer guys on average than say courses here in California. So when it comes to economization of maintenance and the way a golf course should play agronomically, I think they are, you know, they're the gold standard. And I think a lot of the Cal there's the, the have a lot to learn. Are, are our one Australian listener now, he, um, you got it, Adrian. There's your definitive answer, okay? California wins, but you get the consolation prize of superintendent uh, agronomy. <laughs> now, um, you, in that answer, you hit on so many of the places that we're checking out here in February for our winter meeting. I was wondering if you could touch a little more on um, Northwood. So Northwood Golf Club. Uh, I always forget this. Is it Northwood or Northwoods? It's Northwood, no S. And that's kind of a pet peeve of no mine. S. I hear people all the time call it Northwoods. And it always kind of bugs me. Uh, I, I, but I don't know why. But yeah, it's I, I noticed in a, no S. Got it. All right. I'll try to be better at it. Because I noticed in a couple even of my emails, I, I added an S on, unfortunately. But um, yeah, just how do you, how do you describe it? Because it seems like a very unique nine on this planet. Very, very unique. You know, um, Northwood is one of my favorite court, one of my favorite golf properties in the world because it's so unique. And I, I've been going there for probably almost twenty years, and I was the guy always singing the praises of Northwood to people. You know, telling people like, "Oh, you're coming here. You got to go check out Northwood." And people would always look at me like, "What? Never heard of it. Like, where's that?" You know, it's kind of off the beaten path. It's like an hour and a half or so north of San Francisco, you know, right on the Russian River. Beautiful part of the country. Um, very much worth going to. But, you know, it's really just been the last, like, I'd say five, maybe 10 years that people have started to, quote unquote, discover Northwood. And it's like, you know, the influencers, the, the Instagram types, 
they've all found out about it and they've all made their pilgrimage there. And, and I'm, I love that. I'm, I'm just really glad to see that they've gotten all this exposure. Um, and then people, and I talk to people all the time now that are like out here on a golf trip and they're, they go there just because they've heard about it. You know, people from all over the world go there and I know the guys really well that own it and operate it. And, um, they, they tell me, you know, play is up and they have people that come from all over the world because they've heard about this McKenzie gem. And so I think that that's awesome. Um, some things about it, I'd say like, you know, as I mentioned earlier, it definitely could use some good restoration work and, um, but it's still really, really good as it is. And essentially just to, the, the brief background is like, it was, you know, many people might have heard of the Bohemian club. And uh, it's like this old kind of almost like a secret society of there's all these kind of like conspiracies as to like what they do. And, all you know, that's a whole other topic. But anyway, the, the Bohemian Club has a property that they own. It's like a few thousand acres called the Bohemian Grove. And it's on the Russian River in this these giant old growth redwood groves. And um, so a couple of those guys built Northwood starting 1928. And Northward is just on the opposite side of the river, the, the Russian river from the Bohemian Grove. Um, to this day, there's no longer an affiliation there. The ownership has changed several times over the decades uh, and it's completely, you know, public, publicly accessible. It's really affordable too. Um, you know, you can go play. What I recommend people to do is like make a day of it, go play nine holes, go into their cool little kind of funky, but really nice fun clubhouse, have a beer, have a burger, and then, go out for another nine holes. And, uh, and if it's summertime, this is something I've done a lot in the summertime because it, it can get pretty hot up there. It's, it's probably not gonna be like that when you guys are there, but in the summer, it can be, you know, in the nineties and hundred degrees. And so, uh, there's been many times where me and some buddies will go play nine holes and then we'll go jump in the river and, uh, and then like have a bite to eat and then go play another nine holes. And it's just, that's just, you know, really fun. Um, but the course is set in this, yeah, this old growth redwood grove. So as far as like a, a scene for a golf course, it's really unique. I mean, first of all, redwood trees are uh, native and exclusive to essentially the coast of starting central California up into Oregon. That's the only way that, I mean, at least the, uh, this species of what, what most people think of as redwood trees. There are other species of redwoods. I think there's some in China, but they they look quite different. This is the the Sequoia sempervirens. That's the Latin term for these redwoods. Um, not the Gigantica. The Gigantica is the one that grows up in the High Sierras, east up in the mountains here. And those are those trees are beautiful also, and they get to be really really fat, like super wide diameter trunks but they're not nearly as tall. And I think I've heard people say, scientists, that those are the largest living things on planet Earth. The, the redwoods here on the coast of California are also very big, but they don't get nearly as wide in diameter, but they get way, way taller. So people from around the world that come here and look at the redwood trees are, are usually just like blown away. You know, it, they go to places like Mirror Woods and there's other redwood groves you can go to or take hikes and stuff. And it's, if you haven't really experienced redwood trees, it's, it's an experience in and of itself. So just that setting for a golf course is super unique. You, you know, there aren't very many 
places. There are a couple others that I've seen, but but none that are really anywhere close to what Northwood is. So you got this, uh, you know, which is kind of like this actually dichotomy almost because you've got this golf course routed through this grove of redwood trees. And anybody that knows anything about agronomics will tell you that's the worst idea possible. You don't want to try to grow turf grass next to trees, let alone giant redwood trees that have these elaborate root systems that actually don't go very deep. They stay shallow below the surface and they grow horizontally. And so those roots tend to suck up the vast majority of the irrigation that you throw out to try to irrigate the turf grass and the fertilizer and all the inputs. Those, those trees are absorbing most of that. So you're, you know, from a, from a competition standpoint, you have a turf grass with a very shallow root system competing with this giant redwood tree. And agronomically, that's a horrible idea, but they make it work at the golf course. I mean, it presents a lot of challenges. Um, you know, the soils are, are pretty heavy and so it can get pretty wet there when it's been raining and they have some flooding issues because of the river, which is right next to it. And the eighth green is washed out a number of times. And, um, but, and then the other thing you'll notice while you're out there is that, um, five of the greens are original and you'll, you'll see, you know, shapes in the greens that will tell you, you know, back to our earlier conversation in part one, like, oh yeah, I am on a McKenzie property. Like I know when you're on the first green looking around, you'll know that you're on a McKenzie property, and, you know? Um, and then there's four greens that have been rebuilt and that aren't original at all. So those could be rebuilt again to try to restore, which would, I think, you know, enhance that experience a lot. Uh, but all the bunkers, the vast majority of the bunkers are gone, but you'll see them out there. So what happened was he filled all these bunker complexes that are these, these gorgeous shapes, these landforms, and then they've just been grassed over over the decades, but they're still kind of in your face. They didn't do anything to actually like plow over the landforms. So there's several times, and I could even like jot them down on a little map for you to, to you know, because I point them out. I love, this is like one of my favorite things is pointing them out to people when I'm with new new golfers at Northwood that haven't played. And I like to show them, you know, like, look at this, this was a bunker complex. And they go, oh yeah, wow. It's like clear as day. You know, this is a fairway complex or a green complex. Like all the shapes are there, but they're just grassed over. So it'd be really cool to restore those bunkers. Um, there's a couple of the bunkers left, but most of them are turfed over. Um, but it's just all in all, just such a unique golf experience that um, it's, it's, very worthwhile. And I'd recommend anybody that's, if you're ever coming to San Francisco for any kind of a golf trip, you know, pencil in a day if you can to get up to the Russian river and check out Northwood. Yeah, we, we did. So I'm, I'm hoping for dry, you know, no rain. And, and that just getting me excited for just, I love that discovery. Cause it's, it's definitely when you make time to get to the places that aren't your traditional you know, 18 hole or um, bucket list type stuff. I think it just delivers something a little different and it, it adds to the memory of a location, a trip, uh, be with the people in a way, you know, and, and so I get a lot of those vibes from from there. I mean, we're super excited to check it out. The other one, and I know we're coming up on time here, but I was wondering if just kind of on our last course, we've touched on so many of these, but probably the most well-known of the bunch is Pasa Tiempo. So I think our, our members will, likely 
have some context to Pasatiempo, its history, but what are some things that maybe they might not know, or most, most golfers don't appreciate of Pasa or maybe don't understand of its history? What are some of those uh, off the beaten path facts, if you will, about, uh, about Pasa? Uh, let's see here. Well, you know, the whole formation of Pasa Tiempo is a really interesting story in and of itself. Um, you alluded to earlier Mackenzie's relationship with Marion Hollins and they were really good friends and, and, uh, colleagues and they collaborated on, on Cypress point and on Pasa Tiempo and also a little bit later on Augusta, which most people don't know. Um, actually there was one time when Marion Hollins made a trip out to Augusta as Mackenzie's quote unquote associate. And like the story is that, that they didn't know she was coming and she shows up <laughs> and I think Mackenzie was sick or something like that. And, uh, and so he sent her, and as his essentially, you know, advocate and as his representative. <laughs> and, um, but going back to Pasa Tiempo, you know, she was the visionary for that property. And, and her concept was to build this, uh, this, you know, all inclusive residential housing development, a community almost that would, it was very recreational focused. So, you know, there was, golf and there was equestrian trails like a whole network of trails surrounding it and i think there's plans for other stuff tennis and and then a lot of residential kind of around all of that stuff and in those days that was a very unique i mean nowadays people like you could point to tons of examples of you know real estate developers that have tried to do that in those days that was like a pretty unique thing um and i would I'm trying to think of some other examples here, but that was like, I, I'm, I'm fairly certain that was a pretty novel uh, real estate model, development model. Um, and so anyway, and she was, she was brilliant, you know, and she was obviously like a, a very well-known, a very accomplished amateur women's golfer. And, um, but so I guess starting there that I think that that whole story is, is really interesting. Um, and you know, the reason why McKenzie was hired was essentially because they met at Cypress point after Seth Rayner had passed away and McKenzie got that contract. And that's what ended up leading to him doing pasta tiempo. And also that's actually what ended up leading him to doing Augusta eventually with Bobby Jones, uh, because Bobby Jones had met McKenzie previously. And, but then when he came out here for the 1929 national amateur, which we call now the U S amateur, uh, hosted at Pebble beach, you know, Bobby Jones lost in the first round of match play. And so he went and played golf with McKenzie and those guys, Marion Hollins, I think at Cypress point. And then they drove up the road to Pasa Tiempo. It's like an hour drive North of Monterey and for the opening day of Pasa Tiempo and Bobby Jones played in that. And so, because Bobby Jones had experienced Cypress Point, he had experienced Pebble Beach, which McKenzie and his partners Hunter and Egan had renovated previously. And then Pasa Tiempo. Um, in those days, Bobby was at the early stages of thinking about trying to build his own golf course. And he was just blown away with what McKenzie built there. And that's what essentially got him the contract to build Augusta eventually. Um, and on that his model for Augusta was actually 
very similar and based on the Post Tampa model of building this kind of housing development with all this recreation. And although that didn't happen at Augusta because of what happened with the economics of the depression at that time, they, they were trying to sell all these lots around the golf course at Augusta and then none of them sold. There was only one that sold and it was behind the first green, the only house that was built there. And then the club bought, ended up buying that house, tore it down at some point. <laughs> so, um, but so anyways, Pasta Tiempo was sort of like this, um, it kind of set a trend in a lot of ways. And um, from a, just the, on a macro level, the, the development model. Then the golf course itself, you know, it's just a really, really interesting piece of property. Um, the front nine and the back nine kind of have different feels, but, you know, it's still, there is this cohesion, you know, there are things that are, that are different now than it was originally, especially, you know, the most thing that, the, the thing that will stick out more than anything else with trees. So there's a lot more trees now than were there originally. And that, especially on the front nine, the sixth, seventh and eighth holes, have these like kind of bowling alley feel to them, um, which is unfortunate and um, very different than it looked originally. Those those were all just wide open, one giant connected fairway for those three holes. Um, but the greens complexes are wild and just endlessly interesting. I mean, you could just spend hours just putting around on those greens complexes. And um, what we're, it's gonna be a, a unique experience uh, for us, because as you mentioned, all 18 will be open when right. we play, uh, nine restored, nine not. W what should we look out for in in, in that? Because I've never I've never done that. I've never played a golf course where I'm playing nine, half the course is already restored and half of it's not. Are there like, do you think that's an opportunity to look at some things in a different way? Um, all right. Well, in this situation, I guess it's kind of a unique scenario in that there already was a restoration. So Tom Doak and Jim Urbina in the early 2000s did a restoration, a, sort of a preliminary restoration or a precursor to what they're doing today. And so I guess my answer to that question would be different if they had never done that. So like if you were to imagine how the golf course was say pre 2000 and how it is today, if you had one nine restored and the other nine, how it looked pre 2000, then the contrast would be much more evident. And um, and so it would present, it would be so much more contrasting. Um, but because those guys already did a bunker restoration, they didn't really do much to the greens. They, they did a little bit to the greens, but they did sort of like, they, they, they recaptured in a general sense, the aesthetic of the property. And now they're going back and revisiting a bunch of other stuff. So. Like they're trying to reclaim areas of greens that have been lost, you know, get some more pin positions. Um, there's kind of a weird history of what happened to those greens. And they, there was people that sort of augmented them very in a piecemeal fashion over the decades. So like just knowing those guys and talking to them, you know, like when I was on site a few months ago with them, they were explaining to me the process of when they were actually like excavating the greens, they were finding like, weird combinations of non-native material that was thrown in there. And it was like, oh, wow, this was like clearly like a little pocket in a green that got filled in at one point. And that was kind of a surprise and pretty interesting. So they're reclaiming those kinds of things. But uh, you have to be like 
kind of real GCA nerd with a lot of experience playing that course prior to really picking up on those differences. So, you know, it's hard for me to say like the contrast that you guys are going to experience between the front nine and the back nine. I mean, the, the front nine is going to feel like fresher, newer, because it's like the turf is new. You know, the greens are all new, newly grown in bent grass. And then they resodded the surrounds and approaches to the green. So it'll, it'll feel fresher. And then the bunkers, you know, are, um, they reclaim the shapes, but they kind of, they, they, they kept this sort of sharp edge, which is not my favorite, you know, I'm trying to be, you know, diplomatic here. I think they did a great job by and large, but I think that the sharp edge that they have on the bunkers is not really McKenzie's style. If you look at the original photos of those bunkers, they were much more rustic and rugged. Um, but they, it's kind of similar on the back nine as well too. So I don't think they'll like really stick out to be that much different. So I don't know if that answers that question, but no, it, it does. Little things here and there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I know we got uh, a hard stop. You spent a ton of time with us, Josh, this morning. I could spend three more hours. I might bring you back for the camouflage specific podcast you mentioned. <laughs> you like, do a lot. The fact that you can talk two hours about Mackenzie's thoughts on camouflage makes me think I need to make that happen. I need to just dive in because I, I can't even I can't even start to formulate what questions I would have on camouflage, but I know you would have answers to dive into. So we'll, we'll maybe do that if you're up for it down the road, but sure. just wanted to um, to say thanks for for being with us, man. I mean, I think it's, you know, you never know. One thing, cool thing about golf is it's, it's the onion with endless layers and you can keep peeling back, peeling back. And um, I'm thankful that people like you exist in the game that have done a lot of deep digging on things that us as golf lovers, as uh, appreciators, admirers, that we have resources we can go to and people like yourself to to help us, you know, continue that appreciation, continue that education, you know, McKenzie 101, McKenzie 201. And so like projects like the McKenzie Reader that you that you created, that you brought to life. Um, that, by the way, the McKenzie Reader, uh, mine is, is going to be on its way soon, but uh, at alistairmckenzie.org, right? Is that where we can find it most yep. of the time? Yep, alistairmckenzie.org. And there's a store tab on there that you can order the book. And uh, there's some other merch and, and um, getting ready to roll out some other stuff as well. I'm going to have a, a print store that's going to be launching pretty soon. And um, there's uh, some additional books in the works. I'll hint at that's, you know, down the road a bit. But very cool. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. Alistairmckenzie.org. And I'm on um, Instagram at McKenzie Institute and uh, Twitter X, uh, Dr. McKenzie. Perfect. Well, Josh, thank you again. We'll look yeah. forward to chatting with you soon. Sorry we're missing yeah. you in California, but... No, yeah, I'm going to be out of town, but uh, I, you guys got a great itinerary with some great folks, and I'm really excited for you. I mean, hopefully you get good weather. and You know, I think, yeah, like I told you, we, you know, you can get some pretty good weather mixed in throughout January and February. So hopefully it's dry for you guys, and, uh, and I'll hopefully catch you next time you're in town. But great, great chatting. And uh, sounds good. See you soon. Yep. And thanks everybody for listening. And we'll catch you on the next one.